Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll complete book four of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, covering All God's Chillin' Got Shoes, chapters one through five. Let's start the show! Following the ending of his story about Magus, Roland wraps up the loose ends for the rest of his quartet on their way to the Green Palace. There, they find pairs of red shoes, reminiscent to our New Yorkers of those from The Wizard of Oz. Solving a fairly easy riddle, the quartet makes their way into the palace, where they meet the TikTok man and Randall Flagg. After dispensing with them, there's a final test that they must pass. Entering the pink glass and watching the young Roland back in Gilead encountering his mother. The book ends with our quartet back on the path of the beam, on their way to the Dark Tower. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. We have finished another Dark Tower book. Yay, us. Yeah. So, Jay, my first thoughts on this is matricide. Is it really all that bad? Yeah. Well, no, not really. Glad to hear that. <laughs> I'll warn your mother. <laughs> I mean, in this story and in with these characters, I don't think so. I wouldn't say that Roland like was justified in killing his mother, but I don't really hold it against him. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, matricide seems to imply that the character was trying to kill his mother when I don't think, in fact, based on the events that we see through the eyes of Jake and Eddie and Susanna, that he was going in with the idea of killing his mother. Right. However, the way that it is set up in this book it seems that Roland is trying to hide this. He's been very forthcoming with the rest of his story about Magus and how horrible that story is. You know, we're landing on page counts, but you know, 500 pages of the Magus story all leading up to the burning of Susan on the bonfire at the end. And after he tells the story and we do the wrap up, Eddie says, boy, I'm glad the story ended the way it did because, you know, I was worried that we were going to have to hear him saying he killed Susan. And then Susanna sort of takes him to side and say, oh, you stupid, stupid little boy. Yes. That's what he thinks, Eddie. He thinks that he, that he killed her. He thinks that he's to blame. He's directly responsible for Susan's death in his mind. In his mind, exactly. And he feels like he's the one that, that caused the death of the love of his life. But he's very forthcoming about that. Yeah, but is he though? Because Roland spends what is, in our experience, 500 pages of a story telling us every detail in almost agonizingly lengthy way about all the things leading up to Susan's death. But when we finally get to the moment of Susan's death, it's like over in three pages and there's very little to it. It's kind of like when somebody trails off when they, want, they don't want to tell you something that they're ashamed of or that they don't want to share. It's like, yeah, so I started the story strong, but by the time I got to the end of it, like that's kind of how it is for Roland. He spends 500 pages getting to that point and then he just trails off real quick. Like, yeah, and then she died. But he does tell it and there's enough foreshadowing that we know it's going to happen and even the characters know it's going to happen and they realize it. I mean, the first chapter of part four here is really the characters dealing with the aftermath of that story, whether it's Jake coming up and hugging Roland, whether it's Susanna and Eddie going off into the bushes and, you know, sort of saying, here's what I thought of the story and what an impact it has. And they're all emotionally drained by this. Yeah. And th this first chapter also, as I indicated, starts to wrap up loose ends when they start to ask, well, what happened to the last of the big coffin hunter? And what happened to this person? And what happened to Shimi? And, you know, Roland tells those pieces. 
And one of the natural questions is, what happened to the globe? And he says, well, I entered it three more times. And he's very forthcoming about two of the times. And then the third one, he doesn't say at all. Yeah. He doesn't tell them what it is. And they have no idea what it's going to be. And that's the story, really, that's the test that they have to pass at the end of this section where they have to go in and witness Roland killing his mother. And that seems to be the story that Roland does not want to tell them. And it's partly because he seems to feel that if he's okay telling the story of, hey, I killed my girlfriend and the love of my life and our unborn child, and I feel responsible for that, he's still willing to tell that story, but he's not willing to tell the story about how I accidentally killed my mother when I was under the charm of the witch slash the pink glass. And to me, at least, I, and jokingly I said, it does it seem, really seem that bad after the story we've been told? Because in my opinion, I have a much stronger connection to Susan than I do to Roland's mother, whose name is Gabrielle. Gabrielle has only been seen by us a few times in these books. Uh-huh. And in each of those cases, she's not presented in a flattering manner like Susan is. Susan is shown as brave and independent and beautiful and smart and able to hold her own. And I have a deep connection with her when she dies That's has this impact. Roland's mother has seemed to be conniving in some way. Like she's been sleeping with Roland's father's wizard. Yeah. She's, you know, whether or not she's been seduced by him or whether she's part and parcel of it, we don't know. But she's made a cuckold out of Roland's father, Stephen. She is not presented as anybody who seems very warm towards Roland. And part of that is because we just don't see her with Roland at all in the books, other than a few pages in this section where Roland recollects on a vacation they had. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the problem is that King doesn't spend very much time on the page with Gabrielle. We've now gone through four books focused on this character of Roland. We've had many flashbacks to his childhood and early years and life in Gilead. And the only time we've ever spent with Gabrielle has been either observing her from afar or being part of some conspiracy or manipulation that she is probably also a victim of. So she's at best shown as somebody who is not able to withstand or stand up to this manipulation, whether she's complicit with any of these other bigger schemes. We're not really sure, but her love for Roland, which does come, I think, is on the page. I I do think that she does care for her son, and I think she does care for her husband. I don't, I just still think she's portrayed as it's almost always through Roland's eyes, maybe exclusively through Roland's eyes, except for that final scene. Jake and Eddie and Susanna are in the, the pink grapefruit VR goggles, and She's never painted as terribly sympathetic. It's not easy to hate her, but I don't think that there's any reason to really like her. I would say that I definitely don't like her, and I don't know whether I hate her or not, but she is not developed at all in a character that I care about, which is why when the matricide happens, which again is supposed to be this emotional moment for Roland, he's unable to tell this story. Even he dissembles when he's talking about the second time he enters the globe and sees the plot against his father happening. And he says, you know, he sees in in the globe that a person gets the knife that's going to be poisoned and it's going to be used against his father. And he doesn't tell the quartet who he sees as the murderer, um, just that he's going to take care of it. Susanna has a very strong suspicion of who it might be. Exactly. I mean, there's only so many characters in this story that have been introduced in Gilead. (laughs) It's either Court or Gabrielle. It must be one of those two. It's either that or the butler coming out from behind the curtain that we've never seen before. It's the ghost of Hacks the Cook. That leads us to the next sort of piece about this, is that in the the vision that happens, what we see is Roland sees the witch coming at him with the snake. Uh-huh. And that's what makes him turn around and shoot it. It turns out that this is just a glam, a charm of sorts by the globe or the witch or both. It's not entirely clear the globe under the power of the witch, whatever the case, but it's actually his mother. And what has actually happened, it's his mother approaching him with a belt, is how Roland describes it. And 
Susanna, as you've said, says, did she mean to kill you? And he says, of course not. She made that belt for me. It was it was a very yeah. nice belt. It was sort of a forgiveness thing. And Eddie says, is that what you know or only what you want to believe? And I wonder, is Roland right in thinking that, oh, she was just hiding out of some sort of shame or forgiveness and she did have this gift for me? Or, or was Gabrielle planning on killing Roland in that moment? Yeah, I mean, I can only guess as well. Um, just like the characters in the story. I don't think she was trying to kill him, but I'm left wondering, like, why does she hide to begin with? Did she know that Roland or that it was going to be Roland who was going to be the next person to walk in the room? Was she just hiding from whoever might walk in the room? Did she know that anybody was going to walk in the room? It just seems so strange. This is her room. If anybody should be expected to be in this room, it's going to be Gabrielle. So the room should either have her in it or it should be empty. So for her to hide in her own chamber makes no sense mm -hmm. unless she's up to something strange. She was either caught doing something she shouldn't have been doing that she was terribly embarrassed about, or maybe she had some nefarious plan. It just doesn't make sense for her to not just be sitting out in the open on the corner of some piece of furniture holding the belt in her hand hoping that the next person that comes in their room is her son. Instead, she does like this kind of pseudo uh, Hamlet thing, you know, hiding behind the curtain and Roland Turnt spins around and shoots the, at least he didn't shoot through the curtain. That would yes. have been a little too heavy handed, but- A little on the nose. So I don't know. I think that's the biggest thing. And maybe that, again, this is just me taking wild guesses at the story, the magic of the wizard's glass made her feel ashamed at something that wasn't real and so she hid or maybe it made her think that somebody who she didn't want to see her was entering the room when it was actually Roland. you know like roland saw Rhea holding a venomous snake maybe gabrielle saw somebody else who she should hide from yeah who knows who that could have been so putting her in the best light is that Perhaps the globe has charmed her in some way, or perhaps the globe has corrupted her in some way. You know, we've seen other characters who have had possession of the globe be mentally impacted by it and see things that weren't there or have been told to do things that they might not necessarily do. In the best light, I think Gabrielle may have been hiding from her son or potentially trying to hurt him. I don't subscribe to that necessarily. I think that she was in fact going to try to kill Roland. Really? I yeah, I you know, maybe it was under the the charm of the thing, but she was already committed to killing her husband. We've seen that the globe does not tell outright falsehoods as far as what it sees. Um and Roland saw in that vision his mother killing his father with the knife, uh -huh. and he prevented that. I think that she was planning on killing her husband, and if she has gone that far, I willing to bet that she would kill her son as well. So, in light of all that, back to the beginning, matricide, is it really all that bad? In my eyes, no. I think that he is really doing what he needs to do, both to defend his father and ultimately the line of gunslingers that goes all the way back to Arthur Eld, mm -hmm. that has ended with him, or if you want to put a not-so-positive light on the matricide, He's doing it because he needs to to continue his quest towards the tower, which she is an obstacle in that in in the way to doing that. So if we take your position and say that she intended to kill Roland one way or the other, and set aside the fact that she did it in such a ham-fisted way, she could have just been, again, standing in the middle of the room, hey, Roland, come on in here. Hey, what's that? You know, and then loop the belt around his neck and strangle him, right? I mean, maybe that was her silly plan. But I think it was going, just taking that for for granted, I think maybe this was Rhea's final joke on Roland, final hmm. twist of the knife. Because if Gabrielle had tried to kill Roland, there's no way Roland would have lost that struggle. And he would have killed his mother, but felt justified in doing it. It would have hurt him emotionally to do so but he wouldn't have it wouldn't have scarred him emotionally the way that it the way the events turned out but if Rhea manipulates things just enough to make it seem like roland did this almost by accident because 
his training was faster than his own realization of the truth, that he could blame something of himself. His he could blame his his nature, even though he doesn't understand that he has a nature at this point in his life. But he can there's he can blame the innate traits of of his own self as a gunslinger and as a machine of death that he has be, has trained his whole life to become for the death of his mother and therefore it's all on him and he has to carry that burden for the rest of his life right if he did this as a clean self-defense act i think it's easier for him he gets over that in a couple of years and moves on so this is ria's final like you thought you could get one over on me did ya <laughs> and she actually says that she says that from from the glass like this this is what you get for thinking you're smarter than someone who's way smarter than you. I suppose I never thought that or considered that Gabrielle might actually be out to get Roland here. I just assumed that because of their the, this was a, a mother-son relationship that while Gabrielle might betray her husband or even attempt to murder her husband, I don't think she I never thought that she would also do the same or be willing to do the same to her son. But I buy your version of it, and I think that that makes what Rhea has done all the more impactful. Just as an aside here, we've pointed out that this book was illustrated by Dave McKean, who's really famous for doing the covers for Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. And there is an ongoing motif in those Sandman comics of the three women. They're, they're referred to as the Fates or the Furies, the Kindly Ones. Um, and they're this idea from way back in time, I think starting with sort of the Greek myths, that they're the three in one, and it's always the crone, the mother, the the maiden, or the virgin. And we see those the, the, the idea of that three played out here with Rhea, the, the witch, as obviously the, the, the crone, mm -hmm. the mother in Gabrielle, and then Susan as the virgin or the maiden. So it's the three generations, right? Yeah, exactly. The three generations. And in the Sandman comics, it's really those three represent fate or what would be Ka in the Dark Tower book. So I so obviously it's not a new or, or original theme, but mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that it's played out here with somebody who's very famous for tackling that in another series of books by Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman and Stephen King are up mutual fans of each other as well so so i guess the ultimate story of you know whether or not whatever your thoughts are on how roland's mother acted and whether or not matricide is bad or not and whether she was going to kill him or he was going to kill her vice versa the real story is why does roland tell this story why is he ashamed why is roland ashamed to tell this story and what is the point of this whole story in light of the Cotet. You know, we said that he started this story way back when because the Thinny reminded him of it. But he's obviously continued this story on and it has an important part to play as it's sort of this final test that they must pass in this book. So, Jay, what, what are your thoughts on why is Roland telling this story and what is he hoping to gain or what knowledge is he hoping to transfer on to Eddie and Jake and Susanna and potentially even Oi? Yeah, I think Oi has a lot to learn from this story. <laughs> Don't trust Roland. Yeah, exactly. I will be unwavering in my loyalty to Oi <laughs> and my defense of him. I think the first thing to, to mention in response to the, your question is kind of at a meta level. I think, what is the author trying to do? What's King doing with this story? And I think two things are happening. One, he's giving us a really big piece of Roland's backstory. He's telling us, the reader, what makes Roland tick in a way that's far more expansive and far deeper than the flashbacks to his training and things like that. And I think he accomplishes that in spades. Secondarily, he tells us, the reader, how Roland got on this obsessive track to the Dark Tower. And that really isn't revealed until the very end of the Magus story when Roland gets sucked into the wizard's glass and he is first shown the tower. He has a vision in the glass very similar to the vision that Eddie has. And it is from that moment forward that Roland says, or Roland knows, he must find this tower. 
and nothing can stop him. Nothing can get in the way of that. So I think that's really important in the, if you want to look at it that way, that King wrote this story all around those two pillars. But from a story perspective, from a character perspective, I think the first thing that we kind of need to to examine is Roland has reached a point where he has, he's reached a point in his relationship with the rest of his quartet that he can't hold back anymore. I think he needs to be transparent with them. And he's realized that he's kept too much of himself too close to the, to the vest for too long. Hmm. And he needs to tell them. And in his mind, this is the worst thing in his life. I don't know if it really is. I think maybe what he did to Jake might be the worst thing he's ever done. <laughs> then again, he did kill everybody in Tull. That was pretty bad too. So Roland's done a lot of bad shit. But I think the thing in Roland's own past and in Roland's own opinion, probably the worst thing that he did in his life revolves around this story that takes place in Magus. It mostly involves what happened to Susan and how he blames himself for that. But it doesn't really reach its peak or its most important point until he kills his own mother. Those two stories are so intertwined because of the wizard's glass joining them, those two things together that in Roland's mind, there, there may be one story. And yeah. from King's perspective, they are one story. They're, they're within the, two, you know, the front and back cover of one book. So they, they fit together in that sense. So I think that's where Roland realizes he needs to allow his quartet to see him at his worst and know him for what his worst point was and see if they will still accept him and still accept his requests that they join him on his quest to the tower. And they do, yeah. unwaveringly. Like when they're in the glass themselves and witness Roland shoot his mother, the witch addresses them directly. Yep. She sees them and says, will you renounce the tower? This is your chance. And of course they don't. They're all in. And then earlier, before they even enter the glass, Randall Flagg gives them that opportunity as well, and they don't do it then either. And then when they get out of the glass and Roland tells them like, hey, if you want to go back, this is your chance. We're not stopping going forward. And they again are, are all in. So, you know, they have three opportunities to renounce him if they wish to, if we want to they deny the opportunity three times, if you will. If you want to look at it that way, yes, indeed. I do wonder, if what if one of them said, you know what, yeah, count me out, I'm done. Like, <laughs> would a magical door have appeared right there by the Green Palace and allowed them to like, hey, zap back into your life in New York City? Or Oi just said, oi, out, and then just walked back into the woods. <laughs> I'm done. No, oi, don't go. I agree with you, everything that you said, that I do think that that is really the real reason of the story is to... To tell them this is who I am and what I've done and are you with me? And they all agree with him and sympathize with him in, in many ways and are all in on the tower. You know, Eddie was back and forth with that in book two and book three. And, you know, I think at some point in the middle of book three, he said, I'm a tower junkie and I'm in. Yeah, totally. We complained at that point that like, hey, doesn't Susanna get a vote in this? Because she was just sort of pulled in and she hasn't really had a chance to say it. But like by the end of this book, she's in as well. Jake, of course, is in and always, always. So always going to follow along. It seems like now that you mention it, Susanna, I think, had, big surprise, the least agency yeah. in this entire adventure, right? Because Eddie is essentially rescued and Roland hauls him into his world, but they actually go back into Eddie's world and then end up in a situation where Eddie, his life is finished yeah. for health reasons, drug addiction reasons, and I don't know, the legal reasons, right? Cops are on the doorstep. It benefits Eddie tremendously to leave his old life behind and join Roland. Jake has already been murdered and then brought back to life and then betrayed and killed again. And then now this is essentially a, a rescue for Jake. This is Jake's and the simultaneous Jake and Roland redemption of in resetting that that relationship. And they, they both want it and they seek it out and, and work really hard to attain it. But 
with Susanna, with Odetta. Roland jumps in to her mind, hauls ass out of the, the door, and that's it. And then they tie her to her own wheelchair, and like that's it. She's never asked. She's never given a reason. She's never, like, it's nothing. And eventually, she finds her way to love these people in her quartet, but she was never even given a second to think about it. No, and even in book three, when, you know, she's already merged into Susanna, they don't give her a lot of choice. She does not have the same philosophical discussions about what does it mean to be searching for the tower? What is this going to mean for us? What are the long-term impacts of this? She's just... She's not exposed to any of the, the magic or the visions no. that Eddie sees. She doesn't have a mystical experience like Jake does. No, but by the end of this book, she's she's all in. The one thing that would concern me if I were any of these characters is that by the end of this book, it's made clear that the rainbow glass, the pink grapefruit, is not a truthful, it obfuscates reality in some ways. It inveigles even? Yes. Let me get my thesaurus out. <laughs> it's an old X-Files title. The story of Magus ends with Roland showing how the glass has provided him a vision that wasn't true so that he would not have an opportunity to rescue Susan. The pink glass in the vision that they enter of Roland back in Gilead shows how it's able to use a glam to allow Roland to kill his mother. I would be somebody who would be like, wait a minute. So now this pink glass, which has lied to Roland on any number of occasions, is what we're buying into. I don't know if I can trust any of Roland's tale at this point. He might be an unreliable narrator. He's told us this whole story for 500 pages. When we get to chapter four of this section, we're actually shown. So that's the difference mm -hmm. between the tale that Roland has told and the vision that they've entered and, and can see. Like, this is what actually happened. And it makes you wonder, hey, wouldn't it have been cool to see all of these events firsthand like they're seeing it? I don't know if you can trust the wizard's class, and I don't know if you can trust Roland. I don't know where that would lead. I don't think it would change anything with them, but it would be just something in the back of my mind that, hey, all this magic may be playing with my head in some way. Yeah, but it's kind of like the uh, layers of Inception here, right? Because <laughs> I think my interpretation of what this wizard's glass does is that it can only show you things that are real or true, but its personal goal, if it's to, to give it agency, is to inflict and draw power from your pain and from your hurt. So it shows you things that are true and real, but it shows you things that make you unhappy, make you angry, hurt you, damage you emotionally. Yeah. But they're real. I think that when Roland thinks he sees Rhea, I think that that is because Rhea is working her magic and she's using the wizard's glass as sort of a relay device to send her glam through the magic of the wizard's glass. The wizard's glass doesn't disguise Gabrielle. Rhea is doing that. And that's why Rhea is present even in the rewind of when the rest of Roland's quartet enters in and, and witnesses Roland's matricide. That's my interpretation. It gets inception-y here if you start wondering like, well, the whole book, the whole 500 pages of the Magus story is really Roland's retelling of what he saw when he looked in the glass. And if the glass is an unreliable narrator, that means everything Roland thinks he knows is true might not be. And therefore, everything we just learned might not be real. And therefore, the whole 500 plus page diversion on the side of I-70 in Topeka, Kansas might have been just a complete nonsense nothing burger. Or we just take it as fact that that's what happened. And the reason why we know as much as we do is through the magic of the glass. Yes, that is a fair discussion of that. I just wanted to point it out that I'd be, I don't know if I'd buy all in like all these these people do. But again, I've never experienced magic dimensional portals and been pulled out of my own reality. So maybe I'd be more apt to be like, yeah, let's go for the tower. If I yeah. was uh, in that situation. Three days in, you're like, man, another gunslinger burrito. I am out of here. Well, let's transition to the Green Palace. We haven't had a chance to really talk about this. And I'll tell you, Jay, I really had enjoyed the book quite a lot before getting to the All God's Children Got Shoes section. Mm -hmm. But as we've mentioned before, sometimes King doesn't always stick the landing. And 
in this section, I sort of feel like maybe that didn't happen. So as I alluded to earlier, the first chapter of this section is a lot of tying up of loose ends as we find out more of, hey, here's, here's how we got home. Here's what I saw along the way. Here's what happened to the big coffin hunter. He got, you know, he was robbing banks by the end and was eventually killed. And so was his girlfriend, who was Jonas's former girlfriend. And, mm-hmm. she, you know, Shimi bounced around and was able to catch up to us and, you know, just sort of all that stuff. Heading towards the Green Palace is something that they've been marching towards and they get there. And before they get there, these find these red shoes. And immediately mm-hmm. everyone's like, hey, it's the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. We need to click these shoes to get inside. And they get inside and it's very much like the Wizard of Oz. It's a big castle and there's a booming wizard's voice talking to them. But then Oi in the role of Toto pulls back the curtain and, hey, look, it's actually the TikTok man who was the voice and he's the wizard. And the TikTok man was presented as this potential enemy of Roland, a somebody who could potentially stand up to him and be as quick as him. He's a big man. Uh, when they first pull, pull back the curtain, they think, oh, is this Jonas come back to life because he's big and got gray hair? And no, it's the TikTok man and yep. they see his wounds and then boom, he's killed right away. Like, oh, really? There's a parallel there with Jonas, right? Like when we are introduced to Jonas, King spends a lot of time telling us about how formidable Jonas is, how dangerous he is. And basically, Jonas is the only figure in the whole story who could possibly stand a chance against Roland in a fair fight or even an unfair fight. And then Jonas just gets popped off unceremoniously without even a gun in his hand. Yep. The same thing with TikTok Man. We spend all this time building him up to being this giant of a man. He's huge and muscled and fast. He's able to throw a knife faster than the way Roland draws a gun. Right. And again, a character who could possibly stand a chance in a fight against Roland. And Roland at this point is like, he has he's missing fingers like he's down one gun he's older he's not as fast or as agile as he used to be and then he's and we don't even know if perhaps randall flag has imbued him with any special powers because he was mostly dead yeah clearly said to blade and he seems to have been brought back randall flag and when we get that scene which you and i pointed out in book 3 was odd because it was the first scene that was really not from the point of view of any of the major characters. It was Randall Flagg and the TikTok man together. And it was like, whoa, this must be important for King to sort of step outside. And the fact that this character who we thought would might be dead has come back to life. And what does that mean for the rest of the story? And he's brought back and, hey, look, there's the TikTok man. Boom, he's dead. Yeah. And then, hey, look, there's Randall Flagg. Oh, this is dangerous. And that, what is he going to do to this quartet? He's on this thing. He's got the pink ball. Oh, my God. And then, boom, they try to shoot him. Roland's unable to do it because the gun catches on his belt because it's one of uh, Eddie's guns. And he's drawing it with his diminished right hand. And and Flag disappears. It's like, okay, so why did we have this whole buildup to this green palace? And is it just to get us to the pink grapefruit? I mean... Yeah, I don't get it either. Um We've gotten some not so subtle Wizard of Oz references since book three. Yeah. And then throughout this book, they get heavier and heavier till finally this shimmering green castle in the distance very clearly becomes the wizard's castle at the end of the yellow brick road. And we're told through the character's perception that it's to a T Frank L. Baum's castle. Basically, it's drawn from their memories and their recollections and their understanding of the books and the movie. Exactly. Picked up from their head like an old, to go back to what we've said before, an old Star Trek episode where like the alien creature is reading their minds to give them exactly what they want. Right. And so was it manifested simply for that effect to just pay off this buildup of the yellow brick road and the Wizard of Oz metaphor and then... It doesn't really mean anything except to prove that or to demonstrate that Flag is a charlatan just like the wizard. But Flag isn't a charlatan. He really is a wizard. He does have magic and uh, seemingly you know, enormous power. And he is a, a force of evil in multiple worlds. So it's like he's not a sham. No. I don't get it. None of it really adds up when you look closely at it. It just maybe felt right when King was 
putting it together like oh i'll just i'll just end here because they're they're they've been off to see the wizard for 400 pages and stuff so the other piece of how it ends and i i will say that the end 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 like the real end when it ends the the last section of the book is is actually very well written as we get this sort of hey we're all back together and we're a cotet and we are one and we're we're moving forward that's nice but the other thing that bothered me about this is how emotional Roland is in these last chapters. There's a couple times where characters look over at Roland and say he looks really scared and they ask him at some point like, hey, this isn't this doesn't seem cool. Are you scared? He's like, I'm terrified. It's like, whoa, mm-hmm. we've never seen Roland sort of admit weakness so blatantly before. And you know, Roland is crying at some point and Jake has to hug him and it's just it impacted me in an odd way. I'm like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with these feelings that Roland has. I want Roland to be this tough guy. And all of a sudden he's an emotional character. And I know that that's part of the draw for him, but it, it did make me feel a little weird. Well, there are two things happening here from my perspective. One is I think Roland in the act of telling this story and including the story about killing his mother has found a new way or maybe a new inroad to his emotional core that he has closed off, sealed, and locked away for so much of his life Mm. that he didn't really, and he's been alone for so long, that he hasn't had a reason to express or even acknowledge his emotions. We came a little close to some of it when he was giving his pseudo-confession to Brown at the edge of the Mohang Desert. Yes. He needed to unburden himself with the story of his complete murder of Tull. But it was just just under the surface there. Like he really, it wasn't really a confession. It was just like he just needed to speak to somebody. It was still more of a Joe Friday, just the facts type of confession. It wasn't the, how does this make you feel confession. But between the, the, the time he spent growing closer, both in a way that he's dependent upon, like his success depends upon his quartet, I think he's growing closer to them emotionally as a family unit. And sharing this story with him that he felt compelled to do because he needed to, because of how he is growing closer to them, he felt he felt that he needed to be able to share that with him and accept the consequences of whatever their reaction might be. Roland is becoming a more emotionally open person, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever. And that's why when he's scared, he's now suddenly able to say, dude, I am terrified. What are you talking about? Whereas before he might've just been walking alone through this wizard's palace and been reacting to it in a, you know, a soldier's way or something. But He's actually got something to lose now, which he didn't before. We'll probably talk about this next week in our wrap up, but this is really the quartet coming together as a family. Yeah. Very explicitly, like they're, they're one again, they're all together. That might be part of the reason Roland is more scared and emotional terrified because he does have something to lose. Being alone all that time just meant, hey, it's just me and whatever happens is ka. The other thing that I think is happening with Roland is that there are stakes now for him that go beyond himself. And so I found it kind of striking that the whole story about Susan, including Susan's death, elicited no real emotion from me except that interesting story that's a cool part. That was fun. But I understood at an intellectual level that the story of Susan, it, it was a, a sad story and it had a really sorrowful ending. But it wasn't until after the story had been told and Jake hugged Roland that it hit me. I actually cried when I got to that point in the story. And I realized that I have been seeing Roland and seeing Roland's world, experiencing everything through Jake and Eddie and Susanna in a real way that all the characters in the major story, they just never felt as developed. Or maybe they they never could be as developed because they just haven't spent as much time with them. And for whatever happened with Cuthbert and Elaine and Susan and all the rest of the characters that I got to know in Magus, the way Roland told the story didn't hit me. But when I saw Susanna's and Eddie's and Jake's response to Roland's 
emotional outbursts from this, telling the story, that hit me. I just thought it was kind of interesting that I had to feel it secondarily through the characters that I actually truly care about rather than the characters that Roland presented to me. And maybe that's something about Roland. Maybe that's something that's spot on about what King has done, that if you take somebody like Roland and have him tell you a story, there will be every eye in the room will be dry. But if you let Stephen King tell the story, uh, then there'll be a, it'll get dusty in the room. I, on the other hand, am a cold emoticon and had no reaction whatsoever. <laughs> Until Oi nestled up against Roland's foot, and then just waterworks, man. It was Oi. That's who I see the story through. Every time with Oi, man, it gets me too. Hey, well, it's time for fun stuff. Yeah. The interesting thing about moving from Magus and what might be considered old-timey characters, and then back to our New Yorkers, is we get a lot more Stephen King pop culture references. So after 500 pages of no pop culture references, because we were in Midworld's past, we get the Alabama's Crimson Tide, the song Green Door that Susan or Susanna recollects upon, the Wizard of Oz, obviously. They talk about Disney World. They talk about Beetle Boots because those are the each pair of red shoes is set up for their time period and who they are. They talk about the Christmas Carol and Thomas Wolfe's You Can't Go Home Again, which somehow Jake knows of, even though he's 10, which seemed sort of unrealistic to me. But hey, he's 11, so. Oh, 11. Yeah, he, he did he did read it, and it was part of the reading list between 5th and 6th grade, I forgot. Yep. Gone with the Wind and the Keebler Elves, just sort of that King style of writing that we're used to with that pop culture references. We don't have to go into each and, and every one of them, but it was nice to see some of that come back, because that's familiar King for me. Yeah, it was like uh, the floodgates were open, you know, <laughs> the the whole Mages story. It was holding back all the pop culture stuff. And then I got 30 pages. I just got to let them all out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the, the things that I, I caught as like a fun stuff was um, it, I was just wondering now that we've gotten through four books, how much time has passed in the story for the characters? Because I've been reading these books with you now for just about a year. Yep. and taking my time for several of the of these books this is my fourth time through them so i'm covering familiar ground and ground that i i enjoy spending time on but it didn't occur to me till just now finishing up book 4 that like just how much time has passed for these guys they've grown so close together and they seem to truly care about each other and they would kill for each other and die for each other it is is sort of what's i don't know if it's stated on the page, but it's certainly implied that they have this this strong bond of support. So you and I were doing some calculations and we did a little extra research. And at most, I think it's like four months. So these guys have been hanging out for four months. If we put the first book aside, because I think that there's like a, a month or two that of actual that we see Roland chasing the man in black, meeting Jake, him dying and you know, when we get to the palaver, that's about a month's worth of time. And then mm -hmm. the 10 years pass in that weird endless night, let's say. But from the beginning of book two to the end of book four in sort of our character's time, yeah, it's no more than four months. It's really, really quick because book two passes in just a couple of, a few days, really, up and yeah. down the beach. Book three sort of starts off with like Eddie and Susanna and Roland have been recovering for about two months. But then that one moves pretty quick through their events as they get to Lud and barrel across in Blaine. Like those are only a few days. And then this book is really at most a couple of few days from when this book starts to when it ends. Like they only sleep a couple of times. Yep. It is no more than four months at best. Yeah. So it just made me wonder like, I'm okay with that. That's time gets stretched in, in interesting directions in stories. Sometimes you can watch a movie or read a, a whole book that takes place in an hour. Right. Or it could cover years and years. But it's the emotional weight and the uh, emotional connections that these characters have for each other feels like they've been together far longer than four months. I don't know that that's a bad thing or even unrealistic. I They've certainly been through a lot of shit together. 
So shared experiences, especially of the extreme variety that happens in these stories, that forges some pretty strong bonds very quickly. So I buy it, but it was just kind of fun to take a look back and realize that not a whole lot of time has passed on the calendar for these guys. You know, we said we did some extra research. If you look at Bev Vincent's The Road to the Dark Tower, there's in the appendix a timeline of the events that happened. Not only to help you with sort of the day-by-day, how long does do these books take, but then there are separate timelines to put all of the events that happen in their place as well. So there's a timeline of Roland's character's quest, but there's also the timeline of, hey, when was Jake born and when was... Odetta's time period, and how does that all fit into the bigger piece? So, I will say spoilers are abound, so be careful yeah. if you haven't read forward yet. Is there a marker on the timeline for Robocop? Uh, I did not see the Robocop <laughs> marker, but I penciled one in for myself just so I was aware of where, when that happened. I'm going to go back to one of my tried and true fun stuff, and that is the references to storytelling. Um, and there's a few of them in this section. It's always interesting to me when an author references how how stories are told. And early on in chapter one, Roland says, storytelling always changes time, at least it does in my world. And Susanna responds with, in all worlds, sugar, um, which I thought was an interesting, you know, to get to what our point was just now about how storytelling changes time. Like, mm-hmm. that's a good example of it. There's also, as they're walking along the highway, they find a note on a windshield, and it's basically referring to Mother Abigail in the stand. This is the way to find find the woman in your dreams. And I believe it's Eddie who says, I think she's part of another story. Yeah. Yeah, but a story close to this one. As we all know, yes, there are some very close parallels between the stand and the Dark Tower books. And by rights, I mean, they are passing through the world of the stand when they are in Topeka. It would make sense for them to see things like that. The newspaper with the Captain Tripp's headline and that scrap of paper under a windshield, windshield wiper that says, follow this path to find Mother Abigail. And then this one, which struck me, but maybe is not as important as, as I think, they see the shoes and they're talking about the shoes. Roland asks, please tell me what you know about these shoes. And then we get this interesting passage. I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. Odetta said. Mm-hmm. That's the prevailing opinion anyways. And I was like, whoa, Odetta said that? I was under the impression that Odetta was gone. Now, we've seen in the past where a voice that sounded like Odetta or the within Susanna, you could see some of Odetta's personality coming through. But I don't think it has been very explicit when the narrator says, Odetta said, as if it is a different character from Susanna. And really, it's always been Susanna morphing into Detta and back. And this is the thing we've complained about in the past. Why does Susanna have to become Detta to be useful or tough or formidable or what have you? Why can't she just be Susanna, who is tough? formidable, smart, all those things, because she has elements of both Odetta and Detta within her, right? Yes. She's supposed to be the merged personalities and uh, abilities and characteristics of those two women. So this one is especially strange because it's not Susanna said in Detta's voice, it's Odetta for some reason. Yeah, and it's not Odetta's voice. It was just very odd, and it's not even, you know, it would be very easy to say Susanna said, and then from Eddie's perspective, say something like, he could see some of the original Odetta shine through, or when he looked, he saw Odetta. But like to actually say Odetta said, that sort of threw me. I'm sure it was intentional, but nah. hey, if you want to do uh, your dissertation on it, there's a lot to unpack there. Go for it. Just credit me in your uh, during your defense. Sure. If I write a dissertation on the poor characterization of Susanna, I'll ask you to edit it for me. How's that sound? Sounds like a plan. All right. So uh, another fun stuff that I had was um, at one point while they're looking at all of the different colors that are much more obvious in the wizard's castle here that's made of all these different colored glass, it mentions that there's something that is pink 
and it matches exactly the shade of pink of Blaine's hull. Mm. And then I realized how dense I've been all this time. Isn't it also the color of the wizard's glass that has been central to this entire book? Duh. Yeah, I didn't catch that either until you pointed it out. <laughs> we've got things that are pink and that are evil. We've got Blaine. We've got these odd pieces of the castle. And we've got the glass that they're all the same pink that somehow King has painted a picture in my mind that there is a certain shade of pink that is evil, mm-hmm. that is out to get you. And if you get stuck in this color, it can suck you out of your life and ruin you. And I believe it. And maybe the people who created Blaine thought that pink would be a very pleasing color and would put its passengers at ease. But in reality, every time anybody talked about what Blaine looked like, they were always scared of him. And I think some of it came from this unconscious or unrealized appreciation of the color just like a certain shade of pink and just like something made their skin crawl and it's the same color as the glass it has to be yeah oh and i had one other thing right towards the end of it when the quartet is offered the three times to abandon their quest and cry off the tower and go back to their their original lives and they all decline somebody says new york isn't home for us anymore Mm. And of course, that made me think of the Jim Croce song, New York's Not My Home, which is kind of a depressing song, but still one of my favorite Jim Croce songs. I know that I gotta get out of here. I'm so alone. Don't you know that I gotta get out of here? Because New York's not my home. I don't just, I figured if I were doing the soundtrack to the movie adaptation of this book, I think Jim Croce would definitely be on it. And you don't mess around with Roland. You don't. My favorite Jim Croce song. Yeah, but that's one everyone knows. Bad boy, Leroy uh, Roland. There you go. All right. Well, I think we're running a little long here, Jay. So that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we complete our coverage of Book 4 of the Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass, looking at the afterword, the critical reception of this book, listener feedback, and more. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.